Blog Talk Radio. Morning, and thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some of the tough issues, and we do it from different perspectives. And I am your host, Heather Stark, and I am uh, here every week and have been for almost two years. And we have tackled so many topics, especially around the uh, area of domestic violence. And today we have another topic that um, I I found myself not quite understanding, and so I thought, well, maybe if I don't understand it, there are other people who don't, and so I searched for an expert to help us in the issue of dual arrest, and I was able to find a wonderful woman named Julie Randall, who works in Indiana with the, um, uh, what county is it? Hendricks County. County? Hendricks Hendricks County Coalition. Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and uh, she uh, works to um, help with advocacy, community outreach, education, policy development. She was the founding director of Sheltering Wings, which is a domestic violence shelter in Indiana, and this is something we have in common, Julie. She's a former probation officer. I uh, worked as a volunteer probation officer for several years doing pre-sentence reports for misdemeanors. So, I didn't know uh, that. That's great. <laughs> yeah, well, we have had this, I think we still do have it, um, this program out here in King County, Washington, where I'm at, where um, they started a cadre of pretty well-trained uh, volunteers to help uh, lift the load for pre-sentence reports, which if you're not familiar with it, a pre-sentence report is done um, if the judge or a jury finds you, well, mostly a judge, if a judge finds you guilty of a misdemeanor, um, but the judge doesn't have time to go through all of the paperwork and try and figure out what kind of a sentence you deserve, he sends it over to the probation department. And the probation department then will take the case, and the person's already guilty, so you don't have to assume you know anything other than that they are guilty. And they do the research and maybe interview other people that that uh, you know maybe interview a victim or interview uh, other people in your life and uh, interview you. And uh, then at the end of it, they write a report recommending what they think the judge t- should do for sentencing. And then when the person goes back to court for sentencing, the judge has the benefit of your researched report, <clears throat> excuse me, when making his uh, his or her assessment and uh, decision on uh, uh, sentencing for that, that uh, offender. So that's what I did, and uh, I think that you probably did a lot more than that. Uh, but it's interesting, the trajectory of your career. Thank you for coming with us today, uh, Julie, and uh for those of you who are out there, if you are um, uninformed or need more information or have something to contribute on the area of, of dual arrest, um, the phone number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430, and we'd love to have your input. Julie, what's dual arrest when we're talking about domestic violence? Well, when a, when a law enforcement officer gets called to a home as a result of domestic violence, um, there's usually two people in the home. There's a perpetrator and there's a victim. Um, when a law enforcement officer goes to the home and cannot determine who the perpetrator and who the victim is, or in this case, both are victims and both are perpetrators, um, they have often, sometimes it occurs, um, that they arrest both people in the home. And so both are victims and both are perpetrators, and they both get hauled off to jail. That's well, I have, I have <laughs> been around enough domestic violence situations to know that um, they both accuse each other. So how does a police officer know who is the the uh, aggressor and who is the, the victim? Well, for, first off, I need to say that the majority of time when law enforcement respond to a home, they are able to determine who the victim is and who the perpetrator is, and they do make the correct arrest. Nationally, about only about 4% of, of domestic violence arrests are dual arrests. So this isn't a large number of arrests, but these arrests have a huge impact 
on the rest of the domestic violence system because of the impact that they that they that they uh, they, they set forth and the and the cycle that they start when dual arrests do occur. Um, what has happened is uh, we have mandatory arrest laws in most of the United States, um, which means uh, a law enforcement officer, when he sees an injury or he or she sees an injury, um, they are required by law to make an arrest um, if it's a domestic violence situation. And what happened when that law became in effect, basically, um, law enforcement officers um, had a diminished discretion when they went to those homes. So if they go in what there does and that mean? people... What does that mean, Julie, diminished uh, uh, discretion? They don't, ha- they, don't, they, ca- they don't have the discretion to determine who really was the victim or the perpetrator if both of them are claiming injury. With these mandatory okay. arrest laws, it's, it's saying that both of them are saying they're injured, so they both need the both... And they're both perpetrators, and they both need to go to jail. So those mandatory arrest laws, which were great, it was what we needed back in the 80s and 90s because too often officers were using discretion that wasn't taking people to jail that needed to go. And, and so that's why we have the mandatory, um, mandatory arrest laws. And, you know, when you get to the home, sometimes the victim will say, you know, it, it really didn't happen, I'm fine, everything's fine, I don't want to press charges, and then the officer would turn and leave. Well, in the United States now, you don't have that option in a lot of states, especially in Indiana. If they go to a home and find there's an injury, they're required by law, there's no filing charges by the victim, they're required by law to take that person to jail. So, mm-hmm. as kind of an unintended result of that, it's been dual arrest because if both people are claiming that they are injured, then they're now required by law because of these mandatory arrests to take both of them to jail. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So you're saying if both if both claim to be the victim and both are injured and a, a police officer can't sort it out, it's not obvious to the arresting officer, then he is obliged to he or she is obliged to arrest both. Correct. So we, re- we realize, the domestic community, the violence community realizes that we've got to fix this problem because too many people are being arrested who are the victims. Um, because, you know, uh, law enforcement officers want to do the right thing and they went back to re- relying on real legalistic ways of determining, determining who the aggressor is instead of using their, their own discretion. So now we have set in place, and some states have laws, and other states just have policies. Hendricks County, where, where I work, we don't have, or in Indiana, we don't have a primary aggressor law, but we have provisions and trainings that we require law enforcement officers to complete. And what this says is when they respond to a DV run, they need to determine, the officer on the team needs to determine who is the predominant or primary aggressor, who is the one who initiated who who per, who is the the stronger person in the party who ha, who actually um, is the true perpetrator the true and who the true victim is and so we train our law enforcement officers to use a criteria to determine that um, some of the questions that our law enforcement officers ask in their own minds and it becomes second nature to them after a while um, but was one party in actual fear of the other person it was there a fear factor. Did one party escalate the level of violence? Did one person react with a gun to a slap? Did one one person react from a thrown pillow with a knife? So they can look at how the violence escalated between the parties. Um, Was one party physically larger and stronger than the other? Which is important, but, you know, with with this day and age, with so many weapons that are available, you know, that's not always the case. But that is something that they need to consider when they're out there on those runs. Um, is there a history of violence? In smaller communities like ours, and even in larger communities, we keep really good detailed records of domestic violence runs. When dispatch is notified, when 911 is called, dispatch pulls up right then how many times that officer has responded to that home as a result of domestic violence. So when those officers are walking into that house, they know, okay, we've been here five times before, and every time he was the batterer and she was the victim. Now, he's claiming that he's the victim and she's the batterer. Okay, maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense. So they have that knowledge when they go into that home. Has has there been violence against other people? You know, that's another good question to ask. And, again, most departments have that information through their 911 dispatch. Um, Sure. Did, any of the, did any of the injuries appear to be defensive wounds? 
So is she just protecting herself? Or or has he inflicted his own wounds to look like he's actually the victim when, when he, he wounded himself um, to, to, to present him that way? Um, yeah. Which party is in greater danger if you do nothing? If you walk out the door right now, Who's who's going to who's going to get beaten? Who's going to be abused? What is going to be the reaction if, if you're going to leave that home? Are you leaving that home with understanding that everyone's going to be safe in those home, in that home? So those are just all questions that we we train our officers to ask themselves when they walk into a home when both parties are claiming injury. Yeah, yeah, because I I don't think I've. Very rarely have I heard of situations where the abuser, the primary aggressor, isn't saying, oh, I'm the victim here, I'm the victim. Um, but you're saying that police officers are trained for the most part, and they can pretty much determine based on those criteria that you just gave us who, in fact, is the primary aggressor? Absolutely. That's their job. I mean, as a law enforcement officer, that's their job. And that's what they want. You know, they want the right outcome. They want to arrest the right person. And they want that victim to be safe, whether it's a male or a female. You know, that's their goal. That's their hope. And so, you know, they, a lot of them, a lot of officers just do this all naturally in their head because it's second nature to them. But that's yeah. what our goal yeah. is. That's what, that's what they're trying to accomplish. Well, you mentioned kind of the history of how this developed. Um, you know, it's true. Twenty-five, thirty years ago, uh, we were still operating under the the notion that domestic violence was uh, an anger issue that he just got mad or drunk, um, and uh, it was it, as soon as he cooled off, everything would be fine. And so they would routinely take the the uh, aggressor out for a walk around the block or something, and uh, then let him cool down, and then he could go back home and everything is supposed to be back to normal. Um, and, of course, <laughs> that wasn't a very effective uh, assumption. Um, so as we develop this, we still probably have some officers who are still resistant to the notion that uh, it's, it's not just a, 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 oh, he got too hot under the collar or he got drunk issue. Um, is that, do you think that's a fair statement? Oh, absolutely. It's a very fair statement. You know, just like society in general, that's kind of our attitude still um, that, you know, it, 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 when we have fatalities, I hear so often, well, he just snapped. You know, he, it, it, he just snapped. Yes. It, it wasn't thought out. It wasn't in control. But the fact of the matter is domestic violence perpetrators are very much in control of their actions and what they're doing. And so we spend a lot of time training our community in general and law enforcement officers the dynamics of domestic violence so they understand better the situation that they're walking into um, and an important role that they play in ending that violence and providing some amount of security in that home. And it takes a lot of effort, and it's, it's a whole cultural shift. You know, law enforcement officers are no different than the rest of us, and, and it has to be a shift in the way we, we think about domestic violence and handle it. Um, in order for there to be actual real change. But we've made a lot of progress, and we feel like in our community we're, we're doing all the right things to set that in motion. And it starts at a young age. I mean, we have to teach our children um, to respect one another, and, and you can start in bullying and, and lead to fatalities, unfortunately. It's the whole gamut of interpersonal relationships that we have to work on um, and, and teach nonviolent alternatives to angry, behavior, angry thoughts and, and actions. And so... It starts very young and goes and goes and goes, and, and this is just another example of how we have to re-educate, and, and law enforcement officers are on the forefront of getting that knowledge and making those changes and realizing their, their important role in doing that. Yeah, because I've heard, you know, kind of mixed responses depending on uh, geographic area and, you know, of, of how uh, effective the police are in handling and, and uh, defusing a situation. Um so it still sounds like we still have work to go there. Is that uh, fair? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, in, in our state, law enforcement officers are required to be trained in domestic violence um, each year. And I'm sure most states have similar policies. And, and during that time, this is one of the things we talk about. Um, we, we train on every year. They get the same training on determining dominant aggressors. For dominant aggressors, you know, we want them to help learn to understand that and do the right situ right thing in these situations. And most officers yeah. want to do the right thing. They just need the training. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, 
so you said to recognize the signs of the primary aggressor, and I'm assuming that those are some of the, the things you talked about initially. Um, you know, who's hurt, who's bigger, who's, you know, uh, afraid, who's, you know, uh, those were some of the criteria you mentioned for determining? Yes. Okay. Um, and what I, I, I don't know how to ask this. It's kind of a touchy question. But I see so many um, articles in uh, uh, publications. I see so many articles, so many websites that all talk about how women abuse men just as much as men are abused. Having studied this issue uh, for several years now, I'm pretty sure that that's a crock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All of the research uh, does not indicate that, uh, that that's the case. Nevertheless, there seems to be a huge PR effort um, using actual statistics to somehow try and convince people that it, domestic violence is a, is a 50-50 deal. It's not, is it? Uh, no, it, it's not. And you can make the statistics look like what you want them to look like with that because there is so much underreporting and false reporting of domestic violence. It's difficult to have actual numbers. But firm numbers that we do have are fatalities. And the number of women who are killed as a result of domestic violence is the majority. Men are not being murdered at, at the pace that women are being murdered. And I think that that's the true tell situation. Are men being battered? Absolutely. I mean, we definitely have an issue in the same-sex relationships. We definitely have an issue that we have to address there. It's happening. It's happening in a lot. But the severity of those relationships is nothing compared to the severity of the relationships that end in fatalities for women. Okay. Tremendously high. Um, in our county alone the, in the last... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Continue. You're on a roll here. In, 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 our, in our county alone, in King Oaks County, Indiana, in the last five years, we've had four women murdered. We've had zero men murdered. Um, it, 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 it's, it's just such a more dramatic effect. Um, men typically are the ones that are more violent and do escalate it. And, and we're not talking about, about a little lover's flat. We're talking about real-life domestic violence, which involves control and power and, and a lot of dynamics, not just one person hitting the other person. There's a lot more to it than actually just the physical abuse. Yeah. I remember uh, reading a study, I can't quote it because I didn't write it down, but there was a study of uh, survivors of both physical uh, uh, violence and um, uh, psychological uh, control and violence, and the women surveyed overwhelmingly said that they, if they had to go through it again, they would much rather be physically abused than the uh, psychological controlling. Absolutely. That just, that, those, those wounds just are very slow to heal, for sure. Yeah, I always say I, I've written a, a book about domestic violence, and I always say my next book is going to be called <laughs> "Sticks and Stones May Break My Bones, But Words Will Hurt Forever." That's um, right. That's right. But we can, as survivors, we can get past it and move beyond. And most women do. Most women who are in abusive relationships, at some point in those relationships, and can go along to have healthy, successful relationships in the future. And, and, and that's obviously our goal and intent for these women. Is, and that's why we want these guys arrested and these women arrested who are batterers because we want these relationships to change and move on and learn from and, and hopefully become safe and have healthy relationships in the future. Yeah, exactly. Uh, something to, to teach our children how you do this. <laughs> yeah. We spend a lot yeah. of time in our county teaching our kids how to do that because that's obviously where the change is going to have to take place in order for us to, of course. to have a future with I've seen a lot of uh, I've seen a lot of, of young women, though, who kind of minimize um, dating violence and domestic violence. Um, I'm not saying that that's the majority, but I'm saying I'm shocked by how many uh, girls I've seen who kind of excuse it. Yeah, we we Have all we all want to look. Oh, absolutely, we see it all the time, and and young girls especially just want to be loved so much, and and sometimes we'll take love any way we can get it, and sometimes that's what it looks like, and it's why it's so important to teach girls that that's not okay. We don't want to continue our relationships is because. You know, sometimes 
as a society we say, oh, well, they're just kids being kids or are they're just boys being boys and, you know, this is just part of learning about relationships and, and learning about life and we try and tell people that's not part of it. Being in an abusive relationship, um, being sexually abused, being physically abused, being verbally abused, none of those things are, that's not cutting your teeth on relationships. That's in our brains that's helping us form how we think love looks and we need in our adolescent years and our teenage years, they have to be years where we're learning about positive, healthy relationships or honestly the reversal of that takes years to get past. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. why we work we work really hard to, to try and help everyone and perpetrators. I mean, we spend as a domestic violence community so much time talking about victims. But honestly, the real change has got to happen with perpetrators. We've got to teach our boys. You know, we have to teach our boys how to be in a relationship and what, and what love is like. And, and, and all of us as parents need to emulate that and as a society need to encourage that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we need to show what what it means. I mean, at least in different instances in my life, I mean, it's like if you've never seen that, type of behavior or if you've never seen anything different you just assume that that's normal that's just normal that's exactly right yeah. absolutely so yeah and so you you do what you know um so right. i'm encouraged by how much um we have learned over the last decade or so about domestic violence i'm discouraged by the fact that i encounter so many people who still think um the way it was Umpteen years ago, you know. Um, so, I don't know. Am I a pessimist here? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're a realist, and, and, and it, it is true. And it just it takes a whole community changing. It takes our whole society changing the way we look at domestic violence, um, and, and to, to make those changes. And and you know, I have a little example just of my own self. Yesterday, I was in the bank with my four year old daughter, and we were in the lobby. And I was writing out a deposit slip, and I turn around to walk up to the tellers, and all of the tellers are all looking out the window. And I'm like, what are they looking at? And I turn around, because the windows are behind me. I turn around, and there's a woman in the back of a pickup truck with a pitchfork or some or a shovel or some kind of um, lawn care implement trying to break out the back of, a, of the back window of a truck as it's driving through the parking lot. And so, oh, my gosh, my, as it's driving? Yeah, as it's driving, he, he's driving the truck through the parking lot. She's in the back say, screaming, let me in, and, and trying to knock the back window out with, with a shovel or a pitchfork or something. And so, of course, my immediate reaction is, I said, stay right there, Lila, which is my little girl. Stay right there. And I, you know, call 911, and I run out the door to see if this woman yeah. is okay. I go out there, and there's another guy out there, and, and they pull through the parking lot, and we chase the car, and I yell at the girl, are you okay? And she says, no. And so we get the license plate number. The guy with me was just had one of those memories that was great, and he was able to get the license plate number or partial license plate number, the make of the truck and all of those kind of things. And we go back into the building because they're gone. At that point, there's nothing we can do. I go back in the building, and I say, did you call 911? And everyone just looks at me. No one called 911. Oh. Because you know what? And every person in that in that bank's mind, and it's not anything wrong with this. The point is, in everybody's mind, it was this. It's none of my business. It doesn't really affect me. I want to stand back. I, I don't want to get involved in this. I'm just going to pretend like it's none of my business and I, I don't want to deal with this. And that is a perception of domestic violence in our community. It's I don't want to touch that. It's somebody else's problem. It's their own their personal relationship. They need to work it out. Um, and so, in the end, the story worked out okay. Fortunately, we were able to get the name of the of the. He had just been in the bank, so we knew the name of the guy who was driving the truck. And at, at my request, two more times, I said, "Let's call nine one. Let's call nine one one." And we had that information. And so they did call nine one. One of the tellers did call nine one one, and and they were able to track down the truck and and deal with the situation. But I use that example just to to illustrate what happens in most people's brains. And so we need to shift our brains to say when we see those kind of things, when we know people are being abused, when when you can see it in other relationships, it is our job to say something and do something about it. We shouldn't sit on our hands. It's not private. It's our business. And until we do that in a society, it's going to be hard to stop. 
Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm uh, appalled, but I'm not surprised uh, at the reaction. Uh, we do still have that idea that, you know, it's private. It doesn't involve us. We're, we're different. We're safe. You know, we were talking a little bit about this off the air, Julie, where um, mm-hmm. I think that there's so much victim blaming, whether it's domestic violence, sexual assault, whatever, um, we, we blame the victims. And even if we don't think we are, we are, usually. And I think that we do that from kind of a natural place. We want to feel safe. We don't want to feel threatened. So if we can make this horrible thing that happened to that person somehow that person's fault through something she did or she didn't do, then we can feel safe because we'll, we'll do the right stuff. We'll, we'll do it correctly. And so, therefore, we will be safe. Um, so I think I used to get angry with people who, um, you know, have displayed that kind of victim-blaming behavior. Now I kind of feel sorry for those folks because we all know that these things can happen to anyone. And if you think somehow or other you can do something in your life that keeps you safe from all of these bad things happening, you're very naive. You, you just, you're not going to be able to do that. Sometimes it's luck of the draw. And... Um, but I do think that that's where the victim blaming comes from. In dual arrests, getting back to that, do you see a lot of victim blaming um, from people who are arrested? Or sure, I mean, especially in these kind of situations. I mean, this is exactly what it is. It's it's blaming the victim. It's it's saying both of them are guilty. Um, and and, and what the, the biggest impact that dual arrests have is it re-victimizes the victim, so it makes the actual victim a criminal which has a lot of negative effects. Um, you know, in the future, victims will be less likely to reach out to, for help um, as a result oh, yeah. of that, um, for sure. Um, and then in, in communities, word spreads fast. You know, it won't be very long before everybody on her block or everybody in, in the school knows, oh, I'm never going to call the police on domestic violence cases. Or I'm going to have to end up going to jail, too. And what's going to happen yeah. to my kids? And so yes. I mean, that's a, that's a that's a big a big problem um, is is that very kind of the chilling effect that it has um, when you do a lot of dual arrests. Um, it's also hard for prosecutors. Prosecutors can't prosecute either party when there's a dual arrest because both of them are victims and both of them are perpetrators. So they can't talk to either party. So basically, they have to dismiss those cases. That's a huge problem. Oh, and that's really? The, yeah, absolutely. And so that's one of the biggest reasons in our community we discourage dual arrests for domestic batteries. Sure, they're both going to go to jail. They're going to sit in jail for eight hours, which is our cooling off period. Um, and then it's going to end up in the prosecutor's desk, and the prosecutor oftentimes has to dismiss one of the cases or both of the cases. And sometimes they can recharge one of the parties with something else. So mm-hmm. if... if if they're both in there for domestic battery, they can maybe change one to disorderly conduct and the other to um, domestic battery. But if they have a good defense attorney, uh, they don't have a case because they can't. They still can't talk to the, the victim. So what we do in our community is, is if it is a situation, and they do occur, there are situations where both parties are equally guilty. You know, they go through their eight questions in their brains, and it, the officers go through those eight questions in their minds, and they realize, I really cannot determine a, prom- a, a dominant aggressor. I can't. I, I don't know who it is. I'm worried for both of their safety if I leave the home. I'm worried about the safety of the children. They're both going to have to go to jail. And so what, 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 what we do in those – go ahead. What happens to the children in those cases? Well, and, and that's and that, a big problem arises in that situation because um, the Division of Ch- Ch- Children's Services or DCS or CPS, depending on what community you live in, um, but they're having they have to be called to the scene, and um, typically they're having to take into protective custody while their parents are in jail. Now, sometimes officers will call other family members to come and get the children as well, um, but. Again, it, it it wreaks havoc on children. Now they're seeing both of their parents taken to jail. Um, now they're thrown into a bad situation when maybe that could have been avoided if we would have been able to find out who that primary aggressor was. So those are also so the the children are usually taken to um, uh, by child services, whatever that's called in in your area. And right. um, do that do. In dual arrests, do they have a problem? Does either one of the par- parents have a problem? 
getting the children back? Um, you know, it just depends on the situation. What happens in our state, if um, you're arrested for domestic battery, um, automatically a protective order is put in place. That's just an automatic thing. Um, and so if a protective order is put in place, and neither party can contact each other. And so then it relies on the judge to determine, you know, okay, if neither party can see each other, where are the kids going to be and how are we going to handle that? And usually that goes back to the judge. Um, on the initial hearings to determine where the children are. Um, and, and once the Division of Children's Services is involved, it's a positive thing for the most part because at least then you know the children are going to be safe and the right thing is going to be done for those children. But, yeah. you know, if one is clearly a victim and she went to jail anyway or he went to jail anyway, you know, we need to determine that so we can start that whole process, stop that whole process from starting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have often heard um, uh, stories about um, a perpetrator who manipulates the victim. Um, one story that I heard was um, the man uh, confessed to his wife that he'd had been having an affair, and uh, the wife was extremely upset. And of course, there were a couple of little children, and so the man goes, you know, tells her how sorry he is and why doesn't he, she go ahead and go over to the, her friend's house and have a drink and and you know relax a little bit. He'll take care of the kids while she's gone. So she did. She went over to the neighbor's house. They had a glass of, or two of wine, and then she came back. And as soon as she came back, he uh, he he said something to provoke her. I mean, he basically said something about it was all her fault, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she slapped him across the face. And she said as soon as she slapped him across the face, he got this smile across his face. Mm-hmm. And he picked up the phone, called 911, and reported her for for abusing him. Yep, I can and see that happening. She actually it, lost custody of her children for a while. Oh. Um, she had to do anger management and all of the things that we pretend are going to help people in these situations. Um, right. And she was not the one who had been abusive. He was. I imagine it's pretty tough for the court system or the police department to figure out something like that, though. Oh, absolutely. It's a lot of pressure on everyone to be able to figure that out when all they have are the facts in front of them. You know, they, they, don't, they don't necessarily know the ins and outs of that relationship, and it is difficult. You know, I, I, I just keep going back that I know law enforcement tries to do the right thing. You know, I see it day in and day out. They want to do what is right. And unfortunately, sometimes those situations, those batters are, they're pretty savvy. And they know how to use the system against um, the women they abuse. They just do. They know how to do that. Um, And so we have to be smarter than they are and recognize those things. And I'm sorry for that woman and that family. You wish so much those kind of things wouldn't happen. Yeah. Well, especially, you know, when it comes to custody of the children, uh, you know, it, it seems to me, I don't have any studies to back this up, but it seems to me that an abuser can be an abuser and still see his children and have partial custody sometimes, but if he's male. But if she's a, an abuser and she's female, she's, she's gone. She's lost those children. No questions oh. asked. Mm-hmm. Um, do you I can, I see can, that? I don't see that in our community, um, but I can see that that could happen, you know, um, and I think that... The biggest reason women don't get out of these relationships that are abusive is for these very reasons. They're afraid they're going to lose custody of their children. And that's the biggest barrier that we have that women stay in these relationships because they're so scared when they leave because of stories like you just shared that they're going to lose their kids. And so we yeah. battle that continually. And we work really closely with our, our, in our community, it's called Department of Child Services. We work really closely to ensure women that as long as they're doing what they can to improve their lives, which mostly means moving on from that relationship, their kids are going to stay with them. Um, and, and, and they're an ally in that because they want that to happen. I mean, they want the family to stay unified, at least the, the non-abusive partner. Um, to stay with their yeah. children. And so you you just got to hope that the system will work the way that it's intended to work. Um, and for mm-hmm. most people, it does. You know, most people, the system works. Those, it's so unfortunately, unfortunate when you hear that it doesn't, though. Um, but as a professional at working in domestic violence, I just I want to encourage women to, to use the words we say to leave these relationships 
not continue them. Um, know that those are rare instances when those kind of situations happen. Um, and for the most part, the system is set up and to help women out of these relationships and to get support the need to make it on their own. Yeah. Well, I need to disagree with you about the rarity. I, I, it sounds like it's a rare in your in your county and in, in your area. Sure. But the studies that I have seen indicate that in fact it's a growing problem, where an abuser, uh, and of course, since abuse is all about control, what's the best way to control somebody when they're no longer physically in your presence? Well, you try and control her with money or with children. Um, right. You know, and. And so we know that abusers tend to uh, abuse, re-abuse as much as they can through the court system uh, by filing frivolous suits and making accusations and blah, blah, blah. Um, but there is an increase. I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, and I can't. But there, most child custody cases are settled out of court. They're mediated. Mm-hmm. They're settled. Everybody thinks it's unfair, but they're, they'll live with it. Um, with... Um, Certain abusers, with a large percentage of abusers, um, they want the children and they file for custody. So of the cases that go to court to have custody determined, there is a larger percentage of those who are abusers, who are, are fighting for custody. And there has been an increase in the number of abusers who win total custody, total custody of their children, um, and it seems like, especially if there's uh, sexual assault or uh, problems with the man assaulting children, the courts just don't want to believe that, and they just kind of assume the woman is lying about that. I've even heard of situations where um, uh, counselors are advising women to not report that he sexually abused some of the children because she specifically would be not believed and it would be to her disadvantage because the courts would assume she was lying. Have you heard of situations like that? Oh, absolutely, and and that's everyone's fears, too, that that's going to happen, absolutely. And it is a manipulation of the system, and and it's very sad, and it's very hard to counteract. But in the end, we've got to try. You know, we've got to try and end those kind of practices and see through, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, men who who do manipulate the system. But it it, it does happen, absolutely. But I hope it's not the norm. Okay, so going back to the dual arrests, we keep, you know, this is such a complicated issue that we kind of keep going back. If you'd like to join us, the phone number is 646-378-0430. Um, please share with us your experiences or your thoughts on this issue. Um, dual arrest means that they're both arrested. If they are arrested, uh, either party or both parties, um, and then they go to divorce, does it make a difference? whether there's been an arrest or two arrests? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, defense attorneys can always bring that up. A guardian that item who, who represent the children are always going to look at those factors and determine custody issues for sure. Yeah. Um, so it it is disadvantageous for uh, somebody who wants the children to have been arrested. Absolutely, yes. Okay, all right. So, um, and if indeed they are both aggressors, if they both are, um, you know, uh, responsible for the the uh, violence in the home, are the children usually taken away? You know, it just depends upon the, circu- the circumstances surrounding it. And I, you know, I think every case is different. I don't know if there is a usual case of domestic violence, um, but those are all factors that are considered. Um, a lot of times, if batterers get help and they get treatment, um, then they're pretty much treated like they've done what they need to do and life goes back to normal for them, and that happens mm-hmm. regularly. Um, and so typically, no, I mean, typically, you know, we, we want to keep families together and, 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 and work things out, and, and if they follow the orders of the court and do the right things that they need to do, typically life goes on for them as normal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I yeah. Uh, w- there. That makes me think of something that's you know not really on our topic, but it, it came up in my mind, and that is the failure to protect issue. Um, do you deal with that in your county? I know that there are some situations where uh, actually the protective mother is um, charged with failure to protect her children by letting her observe 
um, or be in the in the same space where the domestic violence has gone on, even if the the, the protective mother is a victim. Have you experienced with that? No, I, you know our county. I'm sure that it has happened here. I just have no firsthand experience of it. I know that it can happen and it does happen. Um, we have in our county, in our state, um, a misdemeanor, which is our highest misdemeanor offense, um, is domestic battery. If it's in presence of a child, it's elevated to a D felony, and that makes a big difference. So we've kind of in our laws have said, okay, it's a bigger deal if it's in the presence of our kids, so we're going to charge you as a felon. Um, and, and that helps. I mean, that helps become a deterrent. Um, and any of those cases where um, domestic violence occurs in the presence of a child, our Division of Children's Services is automatically contacted. So they are aware of the situation and oftentimes they'll follow up with the victim and the perpetrator um, to investigate to make sure that that's a safe home for the child. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, I think everybody would want that um, as much as possible. Even, even the natural parents, I think, would want it to be safe for the children. When a woman leaves, though, it's not always a safe situation. Sometimes it's safer to stay. Um, we have had so many instances of, of um, people wiping out an entire family or, or killing children and then themselves, uh, again, just for that final, um, this is the only way they can control, exert their control, so they're going to control in any way they can, even if they end up uh, hurting their children that they supposedly love. Um, Absolutely. So. Yeah, so it's not always safe. I, I think that's another assumption that people make who are not familiar with this whole phenomenon of domestic violence. They assume that you just leave. And right. in fact, if it ever uh, happened to uh, me, I'd be the first one out the door, right? That's what they think. Yes, I, I if anybody ever raised a hand to me, blah, blah, yeah. blah, that would be it. But what they don't understand is that it's so gradual and that there's so much, nothing is ever simple. You know, I mean, if you've got children and you're worried about your children or if somebody says, you know, you'll leave me and I'll kill you or I'll kill the children or uh, you'll never see your children again, um, something like that, well, then you have to stop and think, is the risk worse than staying and putting up with what you've been putting up with? Absolutely. And I think most women will assume that even if I'm in danger, if I can protect the children more, then right. I will keep right. myself in this situation. Um, Absolutely. I read I, one. I, I, go, ahead. Go, go ahead. Absolutely. The, the, the relationship is easier to manage from within than outside of. The situation is more under your control, and, and you can handle it better if you stay in the relationship than if you leave. And I, I believe that's the number one women, reason that women stay. Mhm. Yeah. Which is not an irrational thing. I mean, that's actually no, it's quite very rational. rational. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. And everybody thinks that a woman who stays in the situation is irrational and weak and, um, you know, uh, dependent and you know, and uh, all of those things are such myths. I, I think domestic violence uh, survivors are some of the strongest people I've ever met in my life um, because they have learned how to manage their lives as well as they can despite these you know, untold obstacles that they face. So I would, you know, I, I think that we need, to, we need to give survivors a heck of a lot more respect than we normally do, I think. Um, and the fact is most women do leave as soon as they think that they can do so uh, as safely as they can. Um, but that might not be as quickly as her neighbor thinks she should. <laughs> That's exactly right. We, we always say the survivor or the victim knows when it's time to leave, and we just give them all the options and all the opportunities and a soft place to fall when they're ready to go. Yeah. It's their decision on when they're going to go, and we let that be. We've all we, yeah. we've come to terms with that in the domestic violence community that you just have to accept that and that they'll, they'll make their decision when the time is right. And you just hope and pray that it's going to be before it gets too bad. Yeah. Yeah, because um, it's. It, it, I imagine it's pretty hard to tell. You know, I mean, is is it? Um, you know, is now the time? Is it going to get worse? Is this the time? You know, time where I have to leave because any worse is going to be fatal. You know, for someone. Right. Um, but 
you know, it's a, it's a very tough, tough decision for women. And it's not because they're weak. It's because they're trying to do the best thing that they can for their children and for their families and then for themselves. But, uh, yeah, I just don't think that we give enough respect. And when I hear about dual arrests, a part of me thinks, really, really? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I know mm-hmm. it happens because my mother was very abusive to my father, but he still had strength over her. He had, um, you know, I mean, if he, he physically he could have protected himself just fine. He, he didn't. Uh, and I'm sure that society had something to do with that, that, you know, you don't, even in self-defense, you don't, you know, physically hurt a woman or, or hit her or, you know, whatever, push her away. Um, but, Physically, he definitely had an advantage over her. So if he had chosen to, he could have protected himself more without jeopardizing his family. Um, I guess my point in saying that is that I know, I know that women can be primary aggressors. But in the grand scale of things, it's pretty, uh, a pretty select little group where the woman is the primary aggressor. It's, it's primarily men. And um, I think that you know, we have a hard time with balancing political correctness with the facts. And sometimes when I write a paper or something, I always refer to the abuser as he, but I always put it in that that's because, you know, X percentage of abusers are male, X percent of of, uh, abused victims are female. So for the purposes of this study, we will refer to abusers as he. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that when we keep saying he or she, he or she, yeah, technically that's correct, but <laughs> I think it gives a false impression that it's 50-50, and it's not. It's definitely not. And the not. dynamics aren't the same, and the dynamics are a lot different. And, and, and that's the thing I encourage people to, to consider is the dynamics of those relationships when it's, when it's men who are the victim are a lot different than women. There are a different set of circumstances. Not that they can't be abused, but their ability to leave that relationship is, is is different than a woman's ability to leave that relationship. Yeah, because of the, the control issues. Yeah, well, and, um, and financially and with children and all of those things make it just dif- more difficult for a woman a woman to endure that kind of uh, a relationship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, with dual arrests, what, what, what percentage in your county uh, of arrests for domestic violence are dual arrests? You know, I don't have an exact percentage, um, but it's a small. It's small. If we have maybe one in twenty, one in thirty, um, it's a small number of dual arrests that actually occur. Because you know, again, we're training our law enforcement officers to determine who that dominant aggressor is, and to make sure that they're arresting the right person um, when they do that. Our prosecutor encourages this as well. You know, in our state, we do not have a law. We do not have a primary aggressor law. We just Instead, we do training with our law enforcement officers to make sure they, they understand that. Okay. So we always and minimize you think... it. We actually yeah, we talk always... about this. Yeah, we, yeah. we talk about this routinely. Um, I, I actually, our organization is called the Hendricks County Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and, our, uh, and we probably at least once or twice a year at our meetings talk about dual arrest and see where we are with them and talk about how we need to continue to educate officers. Every time we have one, we bring the subject back up because we think it's so important that their supervisors know that this arrest was made to, to just go back and look at it and to make sure that it was done correctly. Our prosecutor looks at those cases and makes sure that it really should have been a dual arrest. And then we can go back and re-educate those officers if we need to on the use of dual arrest and when it's needed and when it's not. Because it always is an issue. And, and, and it's tough for the officers. It's hard for them. I mean, it, it's a tough situation to be in. You've got chaos going on all around you, and you've got both parties claiming injury. And, you know, you, 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 sometimes you feel like your hands are tied, and the only thing left to do is to take them both. And so yeah. you know, we just want to give them as many tools as we can um, to help them determine it so, that, so they can make the right decision. Yeah. And we train every yeah, and, year on it. Yeah, and I do appreciate what you're saying. I mean, these situations that police officers get called into are very dangerous, they're very chaotic, and uh, we expect police officers to do the right thing for everybody, but we disagree on what that right thing is, and uh, right. It's, it's a tough 
it's tough for those police officers yeah. to get involved in these things. And I have to give them props for, for doing it so, you know, so routinely and for the most part so well. Um, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, some police officers are, eh, but most of them, I think the overwhelming majority, really wants to do the best thing for that family and that victim. And uh, sometimes I don't think we give them enough credit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We, and our... Yeah. Our town and our officers go above and beyond continually. We we do a program called Lethality Assessment Program, and they actually take the time when they're on the scene to ask 11 questions of the victim to help determine their level of danger. And then if they're in high danger, if they answer so many of those questions, yes, the officer determines that the victim is in high danger, and he or she will actually call a domestic violence hotline and have the victim and the domestic violence advocate speak to one another at the scene to make sure that she or he's getting the resources they need at the scene, which is just phenomenal. So they're making yes, the extra effort to do the right thing. Well, it's such a pervasive issue. I mean, we tend to think of robbery and, you know, car theft and things like that as being so huge in our society and prevalent in our society. But, in fact, domestic violence is probably one of the most common uh, crimes that's committed. Am I making a leap there, or do you agree with that? No, and it's the most serious crime. I mean, especially in communities like ours, I mean, we're a very middle-class county we haven't had any murders. The only murders we've had are domestic violence murders. And we'll find a lot of communities that are that way. Um, they don't have gang violence or drug violence, not that there aren't those issues, but somehow we've escaped those types of murders, but we can't escape um, domestic violence fatalities. They just continue to happen. And so it, it is. It's a serious issue for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you said you started out the program, I think, identifying those 11 questions. Could we go through those again that the police officers ask? Sure. Um, the 11th. Oh, when they determine who the dominant aggressor is. Yes. Okay. Well, the the 11 questions that I was that I just referred to were actually 11 questions that that we use with victims to determine um, their level of danger, and so that's something that the victims use so that they understand the situation they're in, and so the law enforcement understand the situation they they're in. It also helps with predominant uh, for primary aggressors because it also paints a clearer picture of okay, how violent the relationship is in each party. So it helps with that, too. But the questions that the officers ask when they're on the scene of, of a domestic violence, when, they're trying, when both parties are claiming injury, um, was one party in actual fear of the other party? Were they actually fearful? Um, did one party escalate oh. the level of violence? Okay, and what do you mean by escalate the, part, the, the violence? Um, let's say that the female threw a pillow at the, the male, um, and then he reacted by slapping her across the face. When the law enforcement officers are called, he says, well, she threw a pillow at me, and she says, well, he slapped me. Well, obviously, the slap meant a lot more than the pillow. And so you have to yeah. look at, you know, the type of, of actual assault that occurred, um, and, and if one party escalated it above the other. Um, okay. Was one party physically stronger than, or larger than the other? That's also a very important um, aspect. Now, again, I, as I said earlier, you know, with weapons, that's not always the case, but it's definitely something that the officers consider. They look at the history okay. of violence um, in that relationship. Um, that's really important to determine whether there's been violence in the past um, within that relationship or violence against other people um, to understand better the type of people you're dealing with. Um, were, there, were there defensive injuries? Um, who and who was the who was the one that was more of the aggressor? Who started the fight? Um, those are all important things to know. And then the biggest question is, if that officer walks out the door, what is he leaving behind? So if he decides, yeah, who who is the party that's going to continue to be abused once the officer walks out of the door? If nothing is done, you know, is there who's in greater danger? So those are all questions that they ask themselves when they go on to a scene where there could be a possible dual arrest. Yeah, yeah. And those are terrific questions. Um, uh, those, those questions are just kind of spot on, uh, it seems to me, in assessing any kind of domestic violence situation. Um, so, okay, so what we've got are these questions that your officers ask on the scene. They determine who the primary aggressor is, and then they interview um, the victim, and they ask the questions for the lethality assessment. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. They ask these questions for value assessment. And those kind of questions are, you know, do you have children in common? Um, that's, um, have you ever left, left the relationship before? Has he ever strangled you or drugs and alcohol involved in the relationship? It's a series of questions that, was, uh, that have been determined um, to help understand the level of danger that victims are in. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. it's a very effective tool. It's effective for the officer so he understands who, who's in the greatest danger. And it's also important for the victim to understand their level of danger. Yeah. Yeah, because I think a lot of times uh, victims will minimize because of all the reasons, you know, that it's difficult to leave, you know. And, and so they sometimes think, well, I can handle this. Um, I can keep it, you know, if it doesn't get any worse, I'll be okay. Uh, and then my kids can finish growing up here and then maybe I'll leave, you know. Right, exactly. Um, so I think, that, exactly. you know, uh, I've talked with uh, women who've said, well, let's put it this way. I didn't, I wasn't expecting him to kill me after I left, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't have been surprised if he had. Right, absolutely. I'm investigating a murder right now, and the exact same thing happened. The girl left the barn, the, the, the victim and her husband and her, uh, her husband's friend were all in the barn together, and they were fi- they were fighting about something. And she left, and she told the friend, she said, "You know, if I text you, call nine one one." And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, ten minutes later, she texted him, said, "Call now," and the guy didn't call, and her husband shot her twice in the back, and now she's deceased. So, you know, they know and they recognize and, and they see how bad these relationships are. Um, and and we, we just all have to step up and do our part for sure. Yeah, and and it can be a dangerous situation. I mean, I'm not sure if I were standing on a street corner and I saw a man abusing a woman that I would actually step right up and say, stop that. But I can certainly call 911. <clears throat> That that's absolutely, and in the end, it's going to have to be those kind of um, bystander. We call it bystander inter- intervention, where we realize mm-hmm. that it's each of us in our own personal relationships and relationships we have with other people and around us um, that we have to step in and not tolerate it. Definitely, don't put yourself in danger, but for sure, do the do what you can to defuse the situation and and know that if you have a friend who's being abused, help them, support them. Um, if you know a coworker that's being abused, make sure they know about the resources. And if you see somebody abu- being abused, call nine one one. Just do it. Yeah. You, you, and you for heaven's sake, don't. Be, and for heaven's sake, don't presume to know better than she does about her life. Um, (laughs) do not presume I I was talking with one woman once and she said well I know if I can ask you a question I have a neighbor who uh, is being abused by her husband and she won't leave him what can I do and I said well does she say why she won't leave him and this woman literally rolled her eyes and said oh she says he's going to kill her if she leaves Uh. and I said believe her Believe right, her. right, right. <laughs> you know, this woman, you know, the, the, just thought the woman, the victim was being overly dramatic. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think victims uh, tend to be uh, more realistic than other people, you know, <laughs> about what Absolutely. the likelihood of something Absolutely. happening to them is. Uh, they they can tell, they can read it, they've lived with it, and um, believe them, I think, is the best thing you can do. Absolutely. We have really gone around the board with this today, haven't we? <laughs> we started out with Thank dual you. arrests, and we we kept talking about dual arrests, but we brought in some other things. Well, uh, you know, with you. And uh, well, thank do you, have you any for giving me this. Op- yeah, I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk about domestic violence and and appreciate your work and getting the word out and and spreading the awareness. It's it's so important. It's important for victims. It's important for our society in general. And I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about it and and encourage other people to do the right things in their own lives and emulate healthy relationships um, with your children and and continue to to work with women who are abused and, and do your part um, to help them become safe. Great. Um, I usually end our show with a quote. wasn't able to find a quote today about, you know, dual arrests, <laughs> but I did find a pretty, a pretty general quote about domestic violence that I really, really like. If someone loves you, it should feel like they love you. 
and uh, I think that's that's pretty a pretty good thing to go by. So thank you so much for being with us today, Julie. I learned a lot about uh, dual arrest. I learned a lot about the the things that are going on in the Midwest. It seems uh, for some reason we have a lot of guests from the East Coast, a lot of guests from the West Coast, but it's good to have, uh, you know, as I mentioned, my stomping grounds that I grew up and born and raised in Ohio, and talking to somebody from Indiana is just about the same. So thank you very much. You're welcome. We'd love to share it. Thank you for joining us. Tune in next week. We'll tackle another hard topic. This is Three Women, Three Ways.